Exodus 2, 11 through 22. One day when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens. And he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. He looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. When he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together. And he said to the man in the wrong, Why do you strike your companion? He answered, Who made you a prince and judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, Surely this thing is known. When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian, and he sat sat down by a well. Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came and drew water and filled the troughs to water their father's flock. The shepherds came and drove them away, but Moses stood up and saved them and watered their flock. When they came home to their father, Ruel, he said, How is it that you have come home so soon today? They said, An Egyptian delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds, and even drew water for us and watered the flock. He said to his daughters, Then where is he? Why have you left the man? Call him that he may eat bread. And Moses was content to dwell with the man, and he gave Moses his daughter Zipporah. She gave birth to a son, and he called his name Gershom, which literally means stranger there in Hebrew, Gershom. For he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. The grass withers the flower fades, but the word of God endures forever. Well, one of the interesting things when you look at church history is that many times there are well-intentioned believers trying to do something uh, by their own hand and that they do not succeed when they try to do that because God has a greater purpose. I was thinking recently of the account of John Bunyan, the great English Baptist nonconformist, who was arrested for the second time uh, for preaching a verse out of John chapter 9, Do you believe in the Son of God? He was preaching in a barn against the edict of the king, and he was arrested for the second time, and yet when he went to prison, his good friend John Owen, who was Oliver Cromwell's chaplain, who had friends in high places, sought to get Bunyan out of prison. I may have told you this story already, and if I have, forgive me, but it's so profound because no matter how hard Owen tried, and he was a very well-connected man, and he had great esteem, he was considered the prince of the Puritan theologians, no matter how much he tried, he could not get Bunyan out of prison. And Bunyan would remain in that Bedford prison for 12 long years. And my best friend said to me once, I'm so glad John Owen failed to get John Bunyan out of prison because if he had, we never would have gotten the Pilgrim's Progress. It was in prison where Bunyan found the greatest comfort from the scriptures. He actually says on one occasion in his autobiography, Chief abounding, uh, Grace Abounding to the Chief of Sinners, he says, I found so great comfort in the scriptures in this place, and I found so great nearness from the Lord Jesus Christ that if it were lawful, I would pray for more suffering for the greater comfort's sake. Wow. Um, now, I tell that story because here, as we're looking at Moses's Life And God is going to raise up a redeemer for his people. He's going to raise up a deliverer. Um, Moses is going to take matters into his own hands here. He's, 
He is going to try to become the deliverer for his people, and it's not going to succeed. Things are going to go horribly wrong, and Moses is going to end up in the wilderness for 40 years. And yet, God is working in Moses. God is shaping Moses. God is going to teach Moses valuable lessons. And what's going to come out of this on the other side is God is making Moses into the man that he wants him to be. I hate this quote. I don't know who came up with it. If, if One of his friends should have told him never to write it down, but it's so true. When God wants to make a man, he breaks a man. I don't like it because my flesh doesn't like it. When God wants to make a man, he breaks a man. God is going to break Moses because God is going to make Moses into just who he wants him to be. I want us to look at four things tonight briefly as we look at this passage together. I want us to consider Moses visiting his people. Then I want us to consider Moses defending his people. Then I want us to consider Moses fleeing from his people. And then I want us to consider Moses journeying with another people. Moses visiting, Moses defending, Moses fleeing, and Moses sojourning. Now, notice that we are told here in uh, chapter 2, verse 11, one day when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens, and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. Now, we don't know what prompted Moses to go on this journey. He is the prince of Egypt. He is, he is being trained, presumably, to be the, the great ruler in Egypt one day. Um, he is... He has all the accommodations of Egypt. He has all the privileges. He has all the wealth. He has all the learning. He, he is in the best position in the greatest nation on the face of the earth, where he is at that point. But something inside Moses, and I assume it had to do with what his mother taught him was when he was a boy, and I assume that there was revelation that was given about Moses. Remember, we saw that, that his parents saw that he was a special child. And a lot of the old theologians say that that means that God had revealed something that he would be used in a special way, that that had somehow had been communicated to Moses. Moses saw the oppression of the Israelites. Moses knew that these were his people, even though the people he is living with and ruling over together with the Pharaoh, together with his Egyptian brethren, that, that what's being done to them is exceedingly wicked and wrong. And, and when it says in verse 11 that he went out and looked on their burdens, the word looked on carries with it, he gave careful consideration with empathy. It's a very unique word in Hebrew. It carries with it, he, he, he considered it with great empathy. He hated what he was seeing done. And notice there's a little clue here. Notice at the end of verse 11, the Hebrew is called one of his people. Isn't that interesting? I think we're meant to understand that Moses at this point knows that he belongs to the covenant people of God, even though he has been transported into Egypt. There's something at work here. And, and what Moses thinks is that he is going to be the deliverer of the covenant people. He, is, he wants to be the deliverer of the covenant people. Maybe what was revealed about him was that one day he would be the deliverer of the covenant people. We don't know. But there's something working in him. And so he goes out and 
he seeks to defend them. Now, this is the beginning of Moses walking by faith and forsaking Egypt. Just his going out and considering the covenant people, just him going out and looking on their suffering with empathy is the beginning of him by faith forsaking Egypt. It's not when he flees, finally. That's actually him fleeing from the rejection of his own people. It is already that his heart has left Egypt. How do we know that? Well, if we turned over to Hebrews chapter 11, you know that great Hall of Faith chapter, verse 24. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He had already made the conscious decision to, to reject the fleeting pleasures of sin for the sake of joining himself to the people of Christ. Um, notice this, verse 26, this is what's going on in his heart. What was going on in Moses' heart to make him do this? The writer of Hebrews says he considered the reproach of Christ. Moses knew about Christ. Think about that. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. Just going out and looking on the people, we can know from the writer of Hebrews that what was in his heart was that he was already treasuring the reproach of Christ as a greater thing than the passing pleasures of sin because he knew there was a reward promised by God, a reward of redemption. That's awesome. Now, we don't know what all he learned in Egypt, what he learned from Hebrew scholars in Egypt, but clearly Moses has biblical revelation at this point, oral revelation, God's uh, spoken revelation carried down through the people from Abraham on, and, and he has the promises. He knows God has promised an everlasting inheritance to Abraham. He knows the promises, and he is valuing them more than Egypt. Now, that would be a very hard thing to do, and let me say two things. One, I want to talk about the difficulty of that. And then secondly, I want to talk about what that says about Moses. Phil Riken says, Moses had everything the world had to offer. He had grown up as one of Pharaoh's grandsons, enjoying all the riches of Egypt. He had everything to lose and nothing to gain by what he does. He has everything to lose and nothing to gain. I want us to consider that when, when we see those who grow up in Christian homes, those who grow up in the faith, and I see this all the time, departing from their profession of faith in Christ, what they're ultimately doing is saying, I have nothing to gain by following Christ. They are merely assessing things by worldly standards. I have everything to gain by leaving. I have nothing to gain by staying. Um, Now, what this tells us about Moses, and this is fascinating, you know, Riken will go on to say, in, in every epic story, the hero, and I'll just read it to you, he says, um, this is a startling reversal. In most foundling stories, the, the hero is removed from the royal court, raised among the common people, finally returning as a young adult to claim and establish his rightful heritage of wealth and power. In this story, however, Moses did not become the hero, the legitimate agent of God, until he burned all the bridges between himself and the wealth and power of the Egyptian court. Isn't that interesting? He doesn't become the hero until all that's burned. 
Um, now, we've considered Moses visiting his people. I want us to consider Moses defending his people. You know this story so well. He sees an Egyptian beating, and the word striking in Hebrew is also the word that is used in a different form for killing. So it's not certain whether this Egyptian has struck murderously or whether he has just beaten him severely. But um, Moses sees this. It triggers something in Moses. And in a a, uh, wild act of his anger, righteous anger, one might argue, he kills the Egyptian. There have been many, many biblical scholars that have debated this. Uh, Some have said, well, you know, Moses was in the unique uh, place in the royal family. He certainly would have had the right to exercise judgment on crimes. That's one argument that's been made. Um, Others have said, well, the lex talionis, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, is at play here? And given the play on the word, all that Moses is doing, it's not wrong. He's just uh, showing vengeance on the one that has killed this Hebrew unjustly. But I, I don't think that gets Moses off the hook. Very clearly, I believe that Moses has murdered this man unjustly. This is not a just act. He is not, he is not the judicial body. He doesn't wield the sword um, in justice. And... And it's good that we don't get Moses off the hook because even though what he does, even though what he does is out of a desire to defend his brother, um, what he does will stand there for him in his memory and will greatly affect what he's trying to do. Um, Now, we don't know. Word clearly travels fast. They have a gossip group in Egypt, because he goes out the next day, notice verse 13, the next day he saw two Hebrews struggling, he said to the man who was doing the wrong, why did you strike your companion? He said, who made you a prince and judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Word traveled really, really fast that there is an Egyptian who is looking out for us and who has killed the Egyptian that beat one of our brothers, and yet this man has disdain for Moses. And we're already seeing that God is not going to let Moses become the deliverer in the arm of flesh. That's that theme that is constantly permeating the book of Genesis. And here in Exodus, um, human attempt is never going to bring about the plans of God. Yes, Moses is trying to defend his brethren, but he's done something evil and wrong. And he will bear the consequences of it. We read in verse 15 now, When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses, but Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well. Now, I want us to consider not just the visiting of Moses and the defending of Moses, I want us now to consider the fleeing of Moses. Um, It might seem on a surface reading of this passage that Moses is fleeing because he's afraid of Pharaoh. It, It might seem cowardly. Um, There have been people that have made that statement that Moses is a coward. He doesn't really care about his people. We've already seen how much Moses cares about his people. He left Egypt by just going out and looking on their affliction. He was with his people. He sought to defend his people against this malicious attack of this Egyptian. 
And, and so the question, well, why, why does Moses flee? And, and look at the text. It, it simply says, when Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses, but Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian. So how do we know that Moses was not afraid of Pharaoh? Well, Hebrews 11, verse 27, listen to this. By faith, he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king. By faith, he left Egypt, not being afraid. You see, the faith that Moses had removed the fear of man from him. He was not afraid of the most powerful man on the face of the earth. By faith, he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. Well, then what's the question? What is the answer? Well, the answer is found in Acts chapter 7. And we have to go to Hebrews 11 and Acts chapter 7 to figure out what exactly is going on. And there in Acts 7, the deacon Stephen, as he is being, uh, giving his dying testimony before he's martyred, he goes through redemptive history. And he gives a recount of all that God did until the coming of Christ. And when he comes to the section on Moses, this is what he says, beginning in verse 23. Stephen says, when he was 40 years old, it came into his, Moses' heart, to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them being wronged, he defended the oppressed man and avenged himself by striking down the Egyptian. Listen, he supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand. He supposed that they would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand. And on the following day, he appeared to them as they were quarreling and tried to reconcile them, saying, Men, you are brothers. Why do you wrong each other? But the man who was wronging his neighbor thrust him aside, saying, Who made you a ruler and judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? At this retort, Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons. Now, what Stephen is telling us is Moses fled into exile because he believed that the covenant people were rejecting him as the deliverer. He was not so much fleeing from Pharaoh's wrath as he was fleeing from the people that were rejecting him. Now, there is a secondary sense, I think, because the text says, essentially, that Moses fled from Pharaoh, that it's quite possible that Moses understood if he stayed in Egypt, it would not only be bad for him, it would be worse for the covenant people. I actually think he understood that if he stayed, it would not just be bad for him, it would be even worse for them. So he essentially sacrificed himself for them. Um, there's so much you wish you wish you could see into the, the hearts and the minds of the characters in Scripture, what all was going on in Moses' heart and mind that caused him to flee. Um, I want us to fourthly consider Moses sojourning. Now, Moses goes down to Midian, and in Midian, he's going to have this run-in with shepherds that come to, um, to provoke and to um, intimidate 
and um, the women that they came to provoke and intimidate, they come back to their father, they tell him about Moses. They don't speak well of Moses, even when they say he's an Egyptian, there's sort of some scorn there. And then uh, Ruel brings him into his house. He ends up marrying one of his daughters. He has children. He names one Gershom. And, and the question is, why, what, what is the point of this? Well, the first point, remember, Moses was 40 when he tried to become the deliverer. He will spend now 40 years in the wilderness, paralleling the 40 years that Israel would have to spend in the wilderness. And then he would spend another 40 years leading them through the wilderness. One one old writer put it this way, Moses was 40 years in Egypt learning something. He was 40 years in the desert learning to be nothing. And he was 40 years in the wilderness proving God to be everything. This is is God's training ground for Moses. He is going to learn so many lessons. On a very simple note, he's going to learn how to navigate the terrain of the wilderness. That's going to come in very handy for 40 years in the wilderness. Here's a guy living in plush castles in Egypt, and he's going to now have to learn how to survive, how to care for others, how to make it in hard places and desolate places. He's going to have to learn spiritually how to trust the Lord. That's something that maybe we don't think about a lot. He comes to the house of a man who is a priest, and you get the idea that these people are worshiping the God of Abraham. There is loads of intimation that these are not false worshipers and that he is growing spiritually through this period in the wilderness. He is, he is learning to depend on the Lord for provisions, something he's going to have to know about in the wilderness. He, he's learning about what it means to become a man of godly character. He, he's even learning, you see, not to act so rashly on his anger. Remember, that's what, that's what drove him there in the first place was acting out rashly on his anger and murdering the Egyptian. Here is another account of, of these shepherds coming and bullying these women. And, and he has in his heart that, that strong desire to be a defender and a deliverer. And, and he's going and he is learning to do that in a nonviolent way. God is training Moses. And there's a word there for us. When God puts us in the wilderness of life and trials, he is always training us to become the men and women he wants us to be. Um, I'm sure it was a long and painful 40 years for Moses to be separated from his family, to be separated from the covenant people, to be among the Gentiles. Think about that. 40 years he's among the Gentiles. Um, Now, there's so much more we could talk about, but I want want us to just briefly um, talk about one thing. I've noted this. Moses is a type of Christ. Moses is clearly a type of the Lord Jesus. And I want to read to you something that... um, I want to read you something that John Fesco wrote. He he talks about Christ as a type. He says, we have Moses, one who occupies a high place within Pharaoh's house, who condescends to be identified with the suffering of the people, who comes as their redeemer, yet is rejected by his own. Isn't that interesting? Christ came to his own, and his own did not receive him. 
There's one simple theological parallel between them. He has to be rejected by the covenant people. And then where does he go? To the Gentiles. And he becomes the redeemer of the Gentiles, essentially. You see how this is already starting to set up that prefiguration of the Lord Jesus for us. That, that, he, that there's going to be a deliverer who is the deliverer of Jew and Gentile. And, and he himself is going to go into the wilderness. He's going to be temp- tempted by the devil. He's going to be tested for that 40-day period. And he's going to overcome in the wilderness. He's going to come out as the sinless redeemer without any flaw, without any sin, without any character deficiency. He's going to come out as the victorious, conquering last Adam to be the deliverer that we need. And as I've noticed already, in a sense, Moses sacrificed himself for the people. He's going to do that later when he prays to God and the people are grumbling and the Lord wants to destroy them. And Moses says, I pray, blot me out of your book. Remember that. Blot me out in their place. He is prefiguring the substituting Savior who who substitutes himself for a people that don't want him as a Savior, who puts himself in the place of a people that don't deserve him as a Savior. Um, There are so many, so many types between Moses and the Lord Jesus. But I want us to focus on one final thing as we look at Moses' sojourning tonight. Why, Why does Moses mention the naming of one of his two sons and the meaning of that name. Why does, why does he name him Gershom? By the way, Micah's middle name is Gershom because I love this so much. Why does he name him Gershom? From Genesis to Revelation, the Bible is about us being pilgrims and sojourners. That's the, that's the whole point of the Bible. God's people do not have a continuing city here. Here we have no continuing city. We seek the one to come. We live as pilgrims and sojourners. Remember Abraham, the writer of Hebrews says, he picked up his tent not knowing where he was going. He never possessed one piece of the land of Israel except a burial plot for he and his family. He lived the entirety of his life here as a sojourning stranger and foreigner. This is not our home. And Moses has come to understand that. The one who left the glories of Egypt, the one who was rejected by his people, the one who was despised and rejected, driven out into the wilderness, the no man's land of the wilderness of this world, he learned during that 40-year period what the life of faith really was, that it is a sojourning life. And so he names his oldest son Pilgrim here, stranger here. You know, I mentioned John Bunyan to you at the beginning. We got that book because Bunyan didn't get out of prison. The Pilgrim's Progress. One of the greatest books ever written for the Christian to guide us through our life of sojourning here. Now here's what's amazing. The Lord calls us to live by faith. He calls us to forsake the passing pleasures of sin to esteem the reproach of Christ, greater treasures than this fallen world, to hope for the inheritance to come. He calls us to learn from those situations he puts us in, what kind of people he wants to make us. He trains us not to take matters into our own hands, but to wait for him to be the one who is doing 
the work of deliverance and working in us what is well-pleasing to him. And yet, he doesn't ask us to do anything that he himself doesn't do. I've always thought this was marvelous. The Lord Jesus Christ, who is God over all, Yahweh, who is going to call Moses audibly in the next chapter, does not call us into anything he will not go into. I want you to think about this. At the end of Hebrews 11, that great hall of faith, we've read about Moses in there. We've talked about Abraham in there. there's There's a crescendo that bleeds into chapter 12. And it says, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who, for the joy set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of God. What is the writer of Hebrews saying? He's saying, just as they lived by faith as pilgrims and sojourners, so Jesus came as the sojourner of all sojourners. I want you to think about this. Throughout the New Covenant era, Christians have had their homes taken. They've had great loss. They've, they've suffered tremendously. Um, Jesus came and he said he had nowhere to lay his head. Um, Jesus moved through the land of Israel just like Abraham did as a sojourner. He, he essentially picked up his tent and he moved through the land. And then what happened to him? He was exiled on the cross. He's exiled on the cross. He's sent out into the wilderness of God's wrath in order to become the deliverer of his suffering people, to suffer for them and to leave them an example of how to suffer as a sojourner in this world. Um, I love these words. Um, There's a hymn by a hymn writer named Henry Van Dyke. He writes, Thou wayfaring Jesus, a pilgrim and stranger, exiled from heaven by love at your birth, Exiled again from your rest in the manger, a fugitive child mid the perils of earth. Cheer with your fellowship all who are weary, wandering far from the land that they love. Guide every heart that is homeless and dreary, safe to its home, in thy presence above. Even in God training Moses before he will audibly call him to be the deliverer, He is training him to know first and foremost that he is a stranger and a pilgrim here. I want to encourage you tonight as we close and just just ask you to really ask yourself, am I living by faith in the promises of God? Am I esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures of this Egypt world? Am I looking to the reward? And am I looking to the Lord Jesus as the author and finisher of my faith who went before me and suffered so that when he calls me to suffer, I'll be able to do that with a pilgrim mindset. I hope that you are. I want to encourage you to do that. Let him who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, we do ask that you would make us a people who have hearts set on pilgrimage. We thank you for all that you did in Moses to give him to us as an example. 
We thank you that he points to a greater redeemer. Lord Jesus, we thank you that he points to you. We thank you that you are the great pilgrim and stranger in the earth and that you are the eternal redeemer of the elect. We pray that you would strengthen us in the knowledge of these truths. We pray that you would make us to be the men and women that you want us to be. We pray that you would help us to together encourage one another to keep our eyes set on that city that has foundation, whose builder and maker you are. And so we do pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.